0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for the privilege of opening up your word this morning. Already we have been so encouraged. Our hearts are full by the testimonies of our brethren, of what you've done in their hearts. I pray that this morning more of those miracles may happen as you awaken the hearts of spiritually dead sinners here, that they would see the beauty of Christ and come to trust him as Lord and Savior and be reconciled to you. Father, do that amongst us. Be with your people as well, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, who are Christians, who are your children. That Today would be a reminder of the fact that, Lord, you love us, regardless of anything that we can ever do anymore in this life. You love us because of the merits of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark, Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning, and if you're able to stand with me, please stand with me as I read Mark 7, verses 1 through 13. If you're not able to stand, it's okay. You can follow as you um, sit down and just follow in your Bible, okay? Mark 7, verses 1 through 13. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophecy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother shall be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would have that would help you is Corbin, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. And the Lord blessed the reading of his word. You may have a seat. I once visited the capital city of El Salvador with a group of Pastors, And we met other uh, national pastors there from El Salvador when we arrived, and they kind of took us around to show us ministry life there and visit various churches. And at one point, they graciously took us to an underground jail where we met some of the most um, corrupt gangsters and mafia individuals in that country. And after ministering to these men, we went out to lunch with these pastors, and we were asking them just questions about their country and even their interaction with some of these Um, mafia lords and gangsters. And one of us um, told them or commented, I guess you must have many challenges with so much criminal activity here in El Salvador, right? And one of the pastors said, Yes, but the greatest challenge is knowing who is real and who is fake, they said. I said, What do you mean? Well, he went on to tell us, mafia criminals, during those days at least, were no longer um, dressing like regular people. Um... They were basically um, or, or dressing like mafia or gangsters, but they were dressing like regular civilians, and um, even um, dressing up um, like normal businessmen. They were getting educations and getting jobs in some of the most prosperous and prestigious companies uh, in that country. So basically, they began to look as sophisticated as anybody else, as people who were upstanding. And one of the pastors said, this is our greatest challenge. He said, telling these individuals apart from the common individual. We don't know who's fake and who is real. I'll never forget that. And I think that when we think about our culture today, I'm sure you feel it as well. That it's very difficult today, isn't it, to, to, un- to really come to, to grips with what is true and what is false in the world around us. You know, you l- hear the politicians, for, it doesn't matter what uh, um, political party they belong to. Um, it's difficult to hear these guys talking, and to know is—is is this a re- the real thing? Is this a, a real statistic, a true statistic, or is this false or fake? And of course, there's the news and the media and all of that, not knowing what is a lie, and what is actually true, what is fact, and what is falsehood. It's so difficult to to know in our culture, isn't it? And then, of course, you have the issue—the same issue—in the church, which infiltrates the church, where it is so difficult. To, For example, for us who are elders or or pastors or overseers, to be shepherding a flock, and I'm sure many pastors and elders would say this in other churches, and constantly not only be instructing the flock, but be constantly warning so that you would be real in your heart and not a phony or a fake. That is a challenge for us in life as well as in the church, isn't it? Well, you know, our Lord Jesus was constantly encountering the same issue. The fake versus the real. The counterfeit versus the authentic. And of course, he knew, according to John 2.24, the hearts of of men. So he knew who the phonies or the real believers were. But at the top of that list, of this ongoing encounter of our Lord Jesus of this issue, were the religious leaders of his day. Those who should have known better, who prided themselves in being worshippers of the true God, Those who were uh, prided themselves in being rigid observers of the law of God, even built a fence around it, as we're going to see, who viewed themselves as an example to everyone around them. These guys were the greatest phonies of all. And here in our passage, we have the opportunity to get to know these guys even more. This is one of the most heated encounters with these religious leaders that our Lord had. And of course, things are going to escalate even more later on. There is this ongoing conflict there's this ongoing antagonism and intensifying of opposition from these religious leaders against our Lord Jesus in the Gospels, isn't there? All you've got to do is just do a, a simple surveying, reading of the Gospels, and you see that these guys were constantly the ones who were hounding our Lord over various issues. And here in our text, they're at it again, this time over the issue of ceremonial cleansing. And it's through this conflict, beloved, between Jesus and these religious leaders that our Lord Jesus exposes the destructive danger of legalism. The destructive danger of legalism. I want us to look these next couple of Sundays today and next week at Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 23 and see that legalism rears its ugly head in two ways, as we see in this passage here. In verses 1 through 13 today, I want us to see that legalism exists When we elevate human tradition above God's Word, when we elevate human tradition above God's Word, and by tradition, I'm talking about man-made rules, man-made rituals. Or we might even talk about tradition this way. Our way of doing things becomes my way or the highway. Even if Scripture, if it goes beyond what stands written. And secondly, next week I want us to see in verses 14 through 23 that legalism exists when we're focused on externalism to the neglect of the heart. When we focus on externalism to the neglect of the heart. So that's what we're going to be doing in these next two weeks under the title, Counterfeit Christianity. Counterfeit Christianity. So today I want us to focus on verses 1 through 13. That legalism is shown when we elevate human tradition above God's Word. And this is a very, very important two messages for us, on two fronts. First of all, because if you are not a Christian this morning, you don't want to be deceived into thinking that you can become a Christian by doing certain things, by being a good person, by just doing better by uh, externally conforming to some moral code, a way of life, but yet your heart doesn't worship God. You don't believe in Jesus Christ. And secondly, because as Christians, for those of us who are believers, beloved, listen to me, we must be careful not to succumb to the great sin of legalism where either we begin to believe that what we do as Christians, keeps us in favor with God, that God will love us more if we're good little Christians who obey God's word every single day from the heart, that God will somehow love us more than He already does. Or on the other hand, we begin to create man-made rules, substandards that we impose on ourselves and others, and make those things markers of spirituality, comparing ourselves to other people and sinfully judging other people around us. This is a very... Very important issue on those two fronts. Either way, we must reject legalism. So the the question that I want to answer right now is, how is legalism manifested or shown? I think our passage teaches us that legalism is present or promoted when we elevate human tradition above God's Word. Okay? Simple outline if you're taking notes this morning. In verses 1 through 5, I want to see I want us to see legalism explained. Legalism explained in verses 1 through 5. And then in verses 6 through 13, legalism, legalism exposed. Legalism exposed. Let's look at legalism explained first and foremost in the first f- five verses. Here we see again, don't we, the legalists, the proponents of legalism were the religious elite, the religious leaders of first century Judaism. Look at verse 1. The Pharisees, it says, and some of the scribes, who the scribes, as you know, were experts in the law... The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. We've seen this before in the early chapters of Mark, especially Mark 2, 3, and 4, that there were delegations at times of religious leaders, religious elite, that would make their way about 90 miles or so from Jerusalem to Capernaum, where Jesus' headquarters were of ministry, to go and confront Jesus on various issues and hound our Lord Jesus Christ. They have hounded him already over the issue of the cleansing of the temple in the past, of his authority in in teaching in synagogues, over the issue of the Sabbath, over his relationship with tax collectors and sinners, as they would call them or refer to them. Constantly these guys are after our Lord. They are the proponents of legalism. Constantly calling our Lord to task or trying to do so based upon things that were not biblical things, if you want to put it that way. So the proponents of legalism are these religious leaders, the elite. They're sort of religious hitmen, if you want to put it that way. They are hitmen constantly after our Lord. Now, what's their problem now? Notice their problem is that they're seeing his disciples do a particular thing or refrain from doing something. Look at verse two. Why do they gather around the Lord? They had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread within pure hands. That is unwashed. What a caring group of guys, huh? And they really care about the, the sanitation, the hygiene habits of these, the health of the, of the disciples? Well, they do not. They don't care about that. They don't care about their health. They don't care about their hygiene. I want you to notice, in verse 2, they had seen some of his disciples that they were eating um, their bread with impure hands. That is unwashed. Something true about the person who is characterized by legalism, beloved, mark it is that they are not concerned primarily about establishing a relationship with people, having conversations, asking questions, so that they can understand a person's heart. It's all about what they can see, right? It's all about the externals. And externals could be an indication of what's going on in somebody's heart. It could be that way, right? It could be that, the, that what you see on the outside of a person may be indicative of the fact that they are in darkness on the inside, but it's not always the case. But these guys were characterized by externalism. They didn't care about the heart of these disciples. They didn't care about the fact that they were hungry and eating. They didn't care about the fact that they had been following our Lord and busy and constantly at work following Jesus Christ. All they cared about is externalism. The externals, what they could see according to verse 2. This is a theme again and again and again in the Gospels. Look down in verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Here's their problem. But they eat their bread with pure hands. What's the problem? They're not conducting themselves, notice, according to the tradition of the elders. That's the issue with these legalists. Seven different times, just in the first 13 verses alone, this issue directly or indirectly comes up about the tradition of the elders. Notice with me, in verse 3, "...for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat it unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders." Verse four, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received by way of what tradition in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Look at verse five. They ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Verse 7, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. That is an indirect reference again to the tradition of the the elders. Verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. At the end of verse 9, in order to keep your tradition. Verse 13, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. There's this ongoing contrast in this passage of the word of God And the tradition of the elders, or of these men, a body of belief that had been passed on from generations to generations. What does this tradition of the elders refer to? You may remember that going back at least 400 years, since the time of Ezra, an oral tradition of teaching had developed and had been passed on from generation to generation. You remember that after the southern kingdom returned from exile, Ezra, the first scribe, led a spiritual reformation to get the people back to being law honoring and abiding people. The intentions were good. The zeal was very uh, good. It says in Ezra two ten that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach it to Israel. And so with Ezra, the first official scribe, there's this renewed zealous sense of devotion to Torah, to the law of Moses that had been given to the nation. Listen, people genuinely wanted to obey God. They genuinely wanted not even come close to breaking the law of Moses, to breaking God's word in the light of what had happened to the nation and God judging the nation. But as so often happens in our lives as humans and as families even, over time there was an unhealthy pendulum swing. In an honest effort to protect and safeguard full and complete obedience to the law, listen, the religious leaders and teachers of the nation, the rabbis, the experts, the so-called wise men, slowly developed a fence of protection around the law. Primarily in oral form, but eventually it was put into official writing after the time of our Lord. So what did this protective fence consist of? was additional rules, rituals, interpretations, even practical advice, given particular life situations, on how to apply God's law. Again, think about this. This was all in an effort to ensure that people didn't even come close to breaking the law. So they built this fence around it. And eventually this compilation of written material came to be known as the Talmud which is a collection of rabbinic and Jewish writings. It's the central document of of Judaism. The Talmud uh, contains both the Mishnah, which is a bunch of writings, ideas, ramblings of various um, rabbis, so-called wise men and teachers, and many, many, many other things. And the Talmud also contains what is known as the Gemara, which on top of the Mishnah is a commentary on the Mishnah. I mean, it wasn't good enough to have the Mishnah. Yet now you have a commentary on top of a commentary, right? You have a lot of this pile of, piles of Jewish writings, interpretations, and practical advice. Which, listen, beloved, eventually had the effect of covering and obscuring God's Word. So when we're reading here the tradition of the elders, what we're talking about here is this whole body of of material that had been compiled... Over time, eventually cataloged, initially oral in nature, but um, eventually later on in written form. And even though Judaism gave lip service to the fact that um, this didn't supersede or it was even on par with Scripture in practice, it was definitely something that superseded the very law of God, God's Word. It reminded me as I was studying and having uh, just been reading over these last few weeks uh, little portions of church history, just trying to read up on church history and being encouraged by, the, by the God's grace over the course of church history, it reminded me of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, it wasn't that the doctrine of justification or the pure gospel had, had gone away, right? Right? It's that decade after decade, century after century, there was so much tradition and rubric and all of that and rules and rituals and all of that that the Roman Catholic Church began to promote and all of that that eventually under the rubric of all of that was hidden the very pure gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Amazing. That's kind of the idea here, even in what we're seeing in our own passage and even various cults today exist. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and many others who have people bound. They indoctrinate them and they subject them to various traditions and belief systems and all of that. Interpretations even of the Bible that are twisted and perverted. That's what had happened during Jesus' time or by Jesus' time. Same with these religious leaders. You know what they would do? They would constantly just point to their traditions, not Scripture for their authority. Oh, Well, Rabbi such and such put it this way. And scribes such and such put it that way. And wise person such and such put it this way. And why such and such put it that way. They were constantly pointing to other people. That's why back in Mark chapter 1 verse 22, we saw that when Je- after Jesus taught in the synagogue of Capernaum, what was the response of the people? They were floored. They were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Why? Because he taught with what? Authority. Not as their scribes and Pharisees. Jesus didn't quote anybody. He quoted Scripture, He explained Scripture, and He helped people apply Scripture, right? That's what our Lord did. Amazing. He was so different than the scribes and the Pharisees. So notice the proponents of legalism here are the religious elite. Their problem is, they're upset that the disciples weren't obeying the tradition of the elders in this area of ceremonial cleansing. But notice their practice. And remember, Mark is writing primarily to Gentile Christians in Rome. So he has to explain in verses 3 and 4 to non-Jews the custom of Judaism with regard to ceremonial cleansing. Look at verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. Again, this has nothing to do with hygiene or health whatsoever, beloved. By the way, only the, the law only required priests to cleanse themselves um, copiously this this way, and there were some other uh, particular unique occasions where others were instructed to clean to, to follow cleansings of this nature. But this is not a biblical practice here. That's why Mark tells us in verse three, thus observing the traditions of the elders. Look at verse four, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. So picture this: I'll go these individuals to the marketplaces where they're. People are out in public buying things and all of that and people are bumping into each other. If these guys even came close to or accidentally touched a Gentile, somebody bumped into them or they touched something that a Gentile touched, they went through this extensive ritual to ensure their cleanliness and purity. And it wasn't an isolated practice. Look at the middle of verse 4. Mark tells us, and there are many other Things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. I mean, it went beyond extensive instructions on how to wash one's hands to page after page, volume after volume of instructions about how to rigidly wash dishes and pots and pans and utensils and all of that, right? Some of you young kids say, well, my mom does that in our house, teaching me how to wash dishes the right way. Totally different, guys, okay? Totally different. It was for legalistic reasons. I mean, beloved, this was an enslaving system of religion. An enslaving system of religion. Well, our Lord is not going to turn His head the other way, right? He exposes them. We've seen legalism explained in the first five verses. Notice, secondly, in verses 6-13, to 13, legalism exposed. Legalism exposed. I want you to notice how forthright... Our Lord is with these legalists. In verse 6, he says, He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophecy of you what? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. That was the word hypocrite. there was the language of the the theater. One who was playing a part where actors would, would put on a mask, right? And pretend to be that particular person. But under the mask, people knew who was there. That was the real them, if you will. To play a part is the idea of a, of a hypocrite here. You know, oftentimes we get this conception of our Lord Jesus that, that, you know, He was very mellow and very kind hearted. And what we mean is that He was very passive. He loved everybody. He didn't want to judge anybody, right? We get this idea of Jesus, never, he was always afraid to step on toes, but listen to me, he was the perfect model and example of love, and yet at the same time, he always spoke the truth, didn't he? Always spoke the truth. Listen, if we want to be like Christ, even in our day and age today, beloved, we must speak the truth and do it in love. Amen? Truth and love working together. We must be bold with the truth, but do it in love knowing that we too are sinners saved by grace. Amen? So that's where the compassion comes in. But speak the truth and be like Christ, right? Be like Christ. I mean, more than any other people, the the audience that Jesus spoke the strongest against were the religious elite, the legalists of his day. He had strong words for them. You know why? Why? Because in their legalism, they thought they were okay. And they put heavy burdens upon other people. And in so doing, people were left out of the kingdom from a human perspective. And Jesus was zealous... And he said, you Pharisees, you religious leaders are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Why was Jesus so straightforward, beloved? So that by the by, by the mercy of God, these people would recognize the fact that they were self-justifying in their works, right? Because if you believe for a minute that you're okay and that you could be a good person and earn favor before God, you are far from the kingdom from a human perspective, Right? That's why he was so strong against the legalists of his day. And what I want you to see here under this point is that he exposes their hypocritical legalism in two primary ways, okay? One, in verses 6 through 8, he exposes their heartless worship. He exposes their heartless worship. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know what your problem is, Jesus says to these guys? What your problem is, you're just like the people 700 years ago during Isaiah's day. People who went through the motions. People who were idolatrous. People who looked good on the outside. Practiced all of the ceremonial cleansing rituals. Sacrificed animal after animal. For the so called forgiveness of their sins, gave lip service to God, but your hearts, just like them, are cold, callous, hardened, and indifferent. That's why he's quoting this here. Just like them, he says, just like them. To those people, God would say, I don't want sacrifices, I don't want your rituals, I don't want you to show up to the temple. You know what my sacrifices are? God would often tell the people through the prophets, a broken and contrite spirit is what I desire. Reverence and awe for the sake of my name. In fact, in the same book of Isaiah, God said to those people in Isaiah 66, verse 2, you want to know what kind of a person um, my favor is upon? He says, but to this one, to this person, I will look... To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, that is from the inside in your heart, and who trembles at my word, the person who is is in awe of my name, who is who honors me, who adores me from the heart to that person that person can come before me in genuine worship, or who genuinely worships me. Jesus said in John chapter four verse twenty four to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth from the heart genuinely and in accordance with who God is that's what Jesus meant those are the true worshipers those who worship in the spirit and in truth oh beloved how I pray this morning that if you are a Christian this morning that you and I are cultivating a heart of worship for God You and I truly love God from the heart. You know, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 is so instructive for us as believers. Listen to what Romans 12 verse 1 says. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. All of life is worship, isn't it? And Paul says, Therefore, in the light of the mercies of God, the tender pities of God, the fact that God crushed His Son on the cross for your sins, and He raised Him from the dead, and you are united in Christ, you are now His child, you cry out, Abba, Father. He says, In light of the tender pities of God, of the gospel of His Son, it is fitting, it is reasonable, that you would live your life in worship to Him. All of life, beloved, is to be genuine, honest worship from the heart before our Heavenly Father. I pray that by God's grace, that you are a person that when we sing, we gather for corporate worship on Sunday mornings, or during the week for prayer with one another, or in small groups, that your heart is there engaged that you are truly there with your brethren, worshiping in spirit and in truth, singing those songs, thinking about the words and the lyrics of those songs, and just saying, Oh, God, thank you. Thank you. I adore you. I praise you. I just want to love you. I just want to praise you for all that you've done on the cross in the person and the work of your son, Jesus Christ. I just want to live to worship you. I pray that that is your heart. Because that wasn't the heart of the religious leaders. I pray that in your family life at home, that you would worship God from the heart, men, by being the spiritual leader and lover of your wife and children, that you are called to be in God's Word. I pray, ladies, that in your home, if you are married, that you would be that helpmate suitable to your husband, praying for him, loving him, supporting him in the endeavor to serve Christ. I pray that you would worship God in your home. That you would not be a particular person on Sunday morning when you show up here and then the rest of the week conduct yourself completely the opposite, uh, continually in patterns of sin. That would not be heartfelt worship, would it? Oh, I pray that if you are in a secular job environment, that you would not be known as a different kind of person. That if your coworkers would show up, your non-believing co-workers would show up on a Sunday morning here. They would be shocked that you're sitting here, looking like a good little Christian, singing songs, hearing sermons and all of that, and yet during the week, you are absolutely looking just like them. That would not be heartfelt worship, right? Oh, beloved, life is all about heartfelt worship for the believer. In light of the tender mercies and pities of God. But these guys were the opposite. Look at verse 7. In vain do they worship me. How? Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He says, you know what? Your worship is empty, vain, focused on outward duty and ritual rather than internal delight and devotion. Wow. Wow. Great quote here. Legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore. Ouch, hit me between the eyes. Legalism lacks a supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but does not adore, end quote. So notice, they're known for heartless worship, but he also exposes their man-centered standards in verses 9 through 13. Notice this. Their man centered standards. They had elevated their man made traditions, rules, rituals, interpretations above God's word. Verse 9, he was also saying to them, You are experts. I think a little bit sarcastically he says that there. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Setting aside there means deserting, abandoning the commandment of God. What's an example of that? Verse 10 For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. The first quotation, there's a quotation of the fifth commandment. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. And the second quotation, there's a quotation of Exodus 21 verse 17. The consequences of a child not honoring his or her parents. Imagine if we were to return to this particular thing. Man. It'd be kind of interesting to see kids' reactions to their parents these days, right? Well, Jesus gives one clear, pretty straightforward, not up for debate kind of commandment. So here's a clear commandment, guys. But here's what they've done. They've perverted and twisted this, right? Scripture clearly teaches this, but notice verse 11. But you say, emphasis on the you. Here's what church tradition says. If a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin, that is to say given to God or an offering or a gift given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. What's he talking about? Well, Corbin was a tradition of, of dedicating money or goods to God for sacred purposes. And primarily it was after you died or should something happen to you. You could set aside goods or, or money for sacred purposes, for maybe the, the sake of the temple or other things. It was stu- it was, there were goods consecrated for God's purposes. Not an evil thing, right? In and of itself. I mean, we do that with our offerings, right? God's money, it's all His, but we set aside a particular portion every month to do, or every week to do what? For the purposes of God's kingdom. Good thing. That's the idea here. But listen, the problem became when a son or daughter who, let's say, did well financially, was prosperous, would declare something as Corbin as a way not to help his or her aged or disabled parents. Sorry, mom or dad. You know, I've already I've already dedicated this money to as Corbin, consecrated it as Corbin. I'm helpless. Nothing I can do. How did the religious leaders handle this? were supposedly the watchdogs of strict adherence to the law of Moses. Listen to me. They did not enforce that fifth commandment in those cases. That's what he means in verse 12. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. So think about this. Let's say that a son or daughter honestly declared something as corbin, but then genuinely wanted to help his or her parents to honor them. The religious leaders, even with an appeal like that, would look to their oral tradition and say, no, you made a vow. This is Corbin. You cannot help your parents. How despicable, huh? How despicable. And Jesus says, you perverted, you twisted God's word. Look at verse 13. Thus, in doing this, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. I mean, this was a pattern with these guys. They elevated their man-centered standards above the very Word of God. This is very interesting. Look back in verse 8. He says, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the the tradition of men. In verse 9, He was also saying to them, You are experts of setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So, neglecting in verse 8, setting aside in verse 9, but then... Notice what he says here in verse 13, thus invalidating the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You know what invalidating means? It means to strip of its authority, to cancel out. I mean, it got progressively worse. All that mattered to these guys was their man-made, man-centered standards, that their traditions were upheld. That's all that mattered to these guys. In the end, their man centered traditions trumped Scripture. Listen to what one writer comments quote, The Mishnah, a collection of Jewish traditions in the Talmud, records quote, It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. End quote. This is a clear example of how the traditions of the elders had become more important than the law, than God's very word. Wow. Wow. I mean, this was the, these were the cream of the crop of Judaism. These were the watchdogs of God's law. And what did they do? Their traditions had become more and more important. Oh, beloved, listen to me. It is so, so eye-opening for me to see this account and see the religious leaders in the Gospels and be reminded of this, that a person can give lip service to worshiping the one true God. You can even be zealous for the rigid, strict obedience of the law. You can impose that on other people, right? For these guys, they were the almsgivers. They were the ones that looked at everything that they did on the outside as a way of being self-justifying, and yet they didn't have a love for God, right? They didn't love the Lord. Listen, they believed they were in because they did these things all the while. They didn't do them because their hearts were broken before a holy God. Thought they worshiped Him honestly and genuinely. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 27, Woe to you, hypocrites, he says. I quoted this earlier. You're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. He says, you lay heavy burdens upon people's shoulders that you yourself are not even able to bear. He was so adamant against these individuals because from a human perspective, they kept people out of the kingdom, right? They were self-justifying hypocrites. Wow. Wow. What do we learn from this account? What do we learn from this account? I think it's twofold. I think first, something that I said at the beginning for those of you who are not Christians, who don't know the Lord, listen to me, at the very least, this passage should be a wake-up call for those of you who are not Christians that you may never think that you can find favor with God by your works or by your human effort. Do you understand that the standard of God is perfection? Is that you would be perfect. That's how Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect means perfect in the Greek there. It means blameless, inside and out, attitudes, motivations, pursuits, priorities, actions, conduct, words. None of us are perfect, right? We all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Listen to me. You can never measure up to God's perfect standard. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of it all. All of it. I mean, you could live, suppose you could live a hundred years inside and outside, that you lived a perfect life, but one day, in one minute of, of rage, you decided to murder somebody here on this earth. What would happen before a judge here on the, in this world? They would pronounce you a murderer, right? And you'd go to jail. One, because of one sin, you would be condemned. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of it all. None of us measure up to God's infinite glory, do we? None of us do. This passage is a reminder to you. If you're a non-Christian you must put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you look at God's word and you and you feel the burden of the law of God upon your shoulders, your heart should cry out as it did for me 26 years ago, "Oh God, I cannot keep your law perfectly. What can I do, Lord?" And God had an answer for me, didn't he? "My son, my son, he is worthy. If you are not able to do this, I can't do it. I can't live good enough." God says, my son is good enough, right? My son who went to the cross, he lived the perfect life that you could never live. He died in the place of sinners, taking upon himself the fullness of the punishment that we deserve for every single one of my millions and millions of sins. And listen to me, he rose again victoriously on the third day, vindicating his claims concerning himself as the God-man, and he was victorious over sin. And death. that is good news, isn't it? That is really good news for the worst of sinners, even myself, Kempis Hernandez. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 20, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What a gift. What a gift. Listen, are you weighed down by your sin this morning? Are you weighed down by the guilt of your sin? You know that you're under God's condemnation and all that's left is for you to pass physically from this life. But you know that there is a second death, right? That you're going to face your Creator. To be absent from the body is to be present before the Lord. You will render an account for the way that you've lived your life. And there's no sin that's going to keep you out of heaven. The ultimate sin is rejecting God's provision in the person and work of His Son, right? Trust Christ. Trust in Christ. Listen to me. You don't change yourself so that you are worthy of coming to Christ. You come to Christ by faith so that he changes you. Right? He forgives you. He removes the guilt of your sin. He restores you to our heavenly Father. And he begins making you new. You come to Christ so that he changes you. So, if we learn anything from this account here, it is this trust not in your works, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Stop trusting in your inherent goodness. You, you don't have any. Every single one of us are sinners. Christ is the great Redeemer. Christ is the great Redeemer. But I also think that there's something here for us as Christians. And we're going to get into this more next week as well. I want you to remember, Christian, that it is not what you and I do on an everyday basis that somehow keeps us in favor with God. If you are a Christian this morning, God is for you and with you. You can find assurance and rest in the fact that God has saved you based upon not your merits, but based upon the merits of the life, death, and resurrection of who? Of Jesus Christ, of King Jesus. It's not by anything that we do. And I also think there are implications here for the way that we relate to one another. Listen to me. If God has fully accepted us in Christ, then we need to love and accept one another in the same way. Right? That doesn't mean condone, justify, or sweep sin under the rug. It means that we understand that in Christ we are complete and we need to be accepting of one another. So much so that we desire to see one another conform to the image of Christ. Right? Right? So let us be careful, beloved. Let us be careful, listen to me, to not be like the legalistic, self-righteous Pharisees who made their man-made rules, their preferences, their interpretations of the law, and so forth, a way for them to conscience-bind other people. Right? We'll look at this more extensively next week. But listen, where there is a clear biblical command, we obey it. We obeyed out of love and gratitude because of the fact that Jesus has died to forgive us from our sins if we've trusted in Him. Where, there, where Scripture gives freedom and latitude and there are biblical principles or guidelines, we pray, we seek counsel, we assess the situation, and then we apply these principles in making wise, Christ-exalting decisions, right? And where it's a matter of personal preference, there is freedom and latitude in those things. And so long as the word of God is not being violated, you're showing love to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's leading you, those decisions are leading you and others to become more and more like Jesus Christ. See, these religious leaders were all about heralding their rules, their rituals, and all of that, not necessarily because they loved other people, not for the glory of God. They did it because they were justifying themselves, right? Right? justifying themselves. Well, next week we'll look at the second big part of this particular passage, verses 14 through 23, and zero in on the issue of externalism and externalism that loses sight of heart worship. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the fact that You have made it so clear that we need to be genuine on the inside. Father, help us to be those who worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for your son that came to die for our sins, that rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. Thank you for the fact that in Christ we are secure, that we are at peace, that there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to treat one another accordingly as well. That if we are family, that if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, help us to love one another. Help us to be at peace with one another. Help us to point one another to Jesus Christ that we may become like him we pray in Jesus name amen Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible copyright by the Lockman Foundation